What's in a mystery that makes it so compelling? Is it just an inability to leave well enough alone? We always have to know, don't we? Many people fill their days trying to avoid unknown, but it's always going to be there. Nagging your thoughts with worry and obsession. The unknown drags us deeper into itself like a black hole until we fall into its center. And then the unknown, well, becomes known. Except, what happens when it doesn't? What happens if the unknown remains a mystery? What if that black hole just swallows us and there really is nothing but darkness on the other side? Sometimes that is just too much for people to process. As we will see in this week's podcast, some mysteries invite speculation like a porch lamp invites moths. Just like an insect, we can't begin to help what we're doing. We simply are drawn to answering those questions that haunt us. We just can't help but fill in the gaps of a story. The gaps in the story I'm about to tell you involve the still unanswered question of how an Indiana son of a coal miner came to be one of the most simultaneously revered and utterly derided figures in modern American history. And what exactly happened to Jimmy Hoffa. Join us for the next hour as we contemplate the confounding. We'll try to gain a little more understanding, but there are no easy answers here. This is Imperfect Clarity. Before we get started on today's episode, I've got to do a little housekeeping. First of all, I need to apologize to anyone who has been waiting anxiously for this episode to drop. I know I'm more than two full weeks behind schedule. This one has been a bit of a doozy for me. I'm still new to podcasting and I'm still trying to figure out what works best for me so I can bring you all my best work. It is just me here making these episodes, remember? So I'm going to try an every other week schedule rather than an every week schedule. Also, I'm going to shoot for Wednesdays instead of Mondays because that just works better for me with my schedule, with my other jobs, my family life, whatnot. So rather than every Monday, new episodes will be coming out every other Wednesday. I hope that it's worth the wait for y'all. Now, about this episode, there has turned out to be a lot more to unpack in this topic than I originally anticipated. So I've decided to break this one up into two parts. Part one will give us the majority of the setup and the history. We'll see in this part a bit about the history of unions and of the American mafia, how Jimmy Hoffa became a part of that scene, and how he got tied up with the mafia and with the Kennedys. Then part two will finish off with a little bit more background about the mob around the time when Hoffa was involved in them, including the formation of La Cosa Nostra, as well as some of the background on uh, some of the most popular suspects in Hoffa's disappearance, such as Anthony Provenzano, or Tony Pro. Before finally diving into the details of the mystery surrounding Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance in 1975. So, without further ado, 
I give you Brotherhood Part 1. My grandpa once told me, You know how to tell if someone is a hero or a crook, don't you? Well, it's simple. Someone is always a crook when they aren't paying you. Bobby smiled his politician's smile. He was so ready for this. He had been going after these crooks for the last year, and he knew he had this one dead to rights. This wasn't like his time with McCarthy. Old Joe, Bobby's old man, had landed him a seat on McCarthy's committee because he thought it would help his boy's political career. Make him look like someone who could get things done. Who would go after those dirty commies and root out the corruption in the federal government. But it didn't really turn out like that, though. McCarthy turned out to be a bit touched. The guy was too much of a zealot. He hated the commies like most people in the States those days. But he took that hate just a bit too far and started going after anybody and everybody that looked even slightly a little too red. He went after people that the people could identify with. All of these kinds of hearings were on the tube these days. Everything was on the tube. Americans were getting sucked face-first into their televisions. And these weren't monsters and maniacs that McCarthy was demeaning and bullying on television. They weren't like Stalin and the commies over there somewhere. They were just regular people, teachers, actors, nobodies, anybodies. And the people on the other side of that news camera could see that. They saw the bullying and identified with the victims. But Bobby, he wouldn't make that same mistake. He was going after real monsters. Criminals, not anybody's. He had thought that he would never get the stink of the part he had played in the Red Scare to wash off his pretty politician face. He had figured it had played a part in his brother's defeat in the Democratic nomination for vice president last year. And it was after that loss, while he and Jack were still stinging with it, when the reporters had floated an idea by him. It was a good idea, too. They had seen him working with the Un-American Activities Committee, and had also seen Kefauver running his own committee after Mick overstepped his jurisdiction, Carthy, turned into the bad guy in the public's reckoning. McCarthy's career was over, but Kefauver was here taking the VP nomination from Bobby's brother because Kefauver went after mobsters, tough guys criminals. Where McCarthy was parading teachers and actors in front of the cameras and calling them criminals because of an ideology that the plumbers and truck drivers that were watching the TV barely understood, Kefauver was showing these plumbers and truck drivers people that they had seen themselves making threats or burning cars, breaking kneecaps. It was genius. Hell, Hoover and the rest of the FBI didn't even want to admit the mob actually existed. But here was Kefauver showing the nation scumbags like Frank Costello. And the people ate it up. This goofy-looking senator from Tennessee in his thick-rimmed glasses? He wasn't even playing the game well. Not like Bobby Kennedy knew he could. Now Bobby Kennedy had been going after these gangsters for the last year. Ever since those reporters had reminded him why everybody loved Kefauver, and he had already won some pretty big victories for the Senate Select Committee.
He'd been smart enough not to make himself the chair of the committee, but he had been the MVP that shined for the TV cameras, that was for sure. And it was all working like a charm. The mob had just blinded that reporter from New York, Victor Reisel. They threw freaking acid in the guy's face for exposing labor rackets. The average working guy hated these mobsters' guts, and they'd shown it too. When that jury had convicted Dave Beck, <laughs> Beck was the president of one of the biggest unions in the country, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. And they had millions of members, brought in millions of dollars, and had such reputation that any average working man knew who Teamsters were and what they were about. <laughs> Unfortunately for Beck, the rank-and-file Teamster was decidedly not about skimming money out of the pension funds to buy your old lady 50-something pairs of stockings, along with all the renovations to the house, all the new property, and anything else she wanted. Nor were they about pleading the Fifth Amendment more than 60 times in a row while you're on trial in the Senate. The Teamsters had held a convention while Beck was on trial, and needless to say, he didn't hold on to his presidency. Salt on the prison sentence wound, that was. Now today, Bobby was smiling because he had another Teamster crook dead to rights. James Riddle Hoffa had seen the writing on the wall when Beck took the fall. He had been privy to everything Beck was doing, and more. He was, after all, Beck's second-in-command. And when it started to become obvious that Beck was going down, which was... After about the third time, the fat schmuck blabbed out another, I refuse to answer that question on the basis that this committee lacks jurisdiction or authority under Articles 1, 2, and 3 of the Constitution. And further, I decline to answer because I refuse to give testimony which may incriminate me and I invoke the Fourth and Fifth Amendment, blah, 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 blah. That got pretty old after about 65 times in one hearing. Hoffa knew this looked bad. So he started scheming to cover his own assets. The guy was a crook, through and through though, and Bobby had him red-handed, had pictures of him, Jimmy Hoffa himself personally bribing a member of the committee with a few grand in cash. Sure, Hoffa had a bit more charisma than old Beck did, but the jury wouldn't deny their own eyes, surely. Pictures of Hoffa handing over a bribe in person? So Bobby was all smiles when the jurors came back. He couldn't wait to hear them convict this scum. It turns out Bobby had miscalculated. He hadn't accounted for how wily Jimmy's defense lawyer was. This was 1957, remember. The biggest domestic news of the day was racism. The civil rights movement was all that was on people's minds when it came to what America should do about America. Bobby hadn't seen the ploy coming, though, when Jimmy's lawyer, mobster Bill Buffalino, had filled the jury box with black people, and he still didn't pick up on the tactic when Buffalino focused more on tying the ideas of labor unions and workers' rights together with the minorities' rights in the civil rights movement, rather than focusing on his client's innocence. In the end, Jimmy Hoffa's innocence didn't really matter to those 12 jurors. They only cared that he was a union leader. They only cared that he fought for them. And they concluded that he was not guilty of the crimes that he was caught on camera committing.
this incident in July of 57, this time that Hoffa got away with bribery, sparked an obsession in Robert Kennedy. It also serves to highlight the real riddle that shrouds James Riddle Hoffa. See, the question of who killed the guy and where his body ended up, yeah, it's pretty intriguing. But the question that perplexes me is rather, what do we call Jimmy Hoffa when he was alive? Was he a good guy or a bad guy? A union leader or a racketeer? Mob crook or hero for the working man's rights? The thing that makes that question so hard these days is that people don't see the unions themselves like they used to. Nor, for that matter, do they see the mob like they used to. The mafia is still around, just like the unions, but they've been busted up and are certainly long past their golden age. The unions, too, are hardly a shell of what they used to be. I feel like it'd be a good idea to kind of familiarize ourselves with what these entities used to be. Some people tie the very beginning roots of the unions all the way back to the trade guilds of medieval Europe. Seems to me like an awful lot of things can be traced back to that time for folks to keep referring to those years as the Dark Ages. But still, the connections between the guilds and the start of the unions is a bit shaky. One thing that is a surefire connection, though, is the ties between the unions and crime. Trade unions were illegal from the 14th century all the way up into the modern period. An act was passed in Britain in 1799 that reinforced the criminality of workers' collective bargaining. In 1818, one of the first, possibly the first union, called the General Union of Trades, had to try and hide their real intentions by calling themselves the Philanthropic Society in public or to outsiders. Unions in general didn't become legal in Britain until 1867. That was around the time that the first organizations of workers were formed in the U.S. The Knights of Labor formed in 1869, but it didn't really start to grow until 1880, however. The unions everywhere were starting to boom around this time. Hell, everything everywhere was starting to boom around this time. According to researchers Charles Hirschman and Elizabeth Mogford, Numbers of farm workers outnumbered those of factory workers in 1880, but by 1920 these numbers were tied, and they wouldn't stay tied for long either. Employment in the manufacturing sector expanded fourfold from 2.5 to 10 million workers from 1880 to 1920. This was a huge rise in urbanization. With the advent of electrical systems to energize our machines and that of the automobile to bring people and parts all over the country, the cities became the centers of everything, and manufacturing jobs became the star player in America's economy. Here's a question for y'all, though. Did y'all read Upton Sinclair's The Jungle when you were in high school, like I did? If you've ever so much as skimmed over those gruesome pages of that early industrial story, you know without any doubt why regulations on manufacturing and production are very important. So it's no wonder that the masses of people flocking to the cities and to the factories were keen on organizing into unions around this time. These harrowing conditions that these workers faced in the cities weren't the only major changes that contributed to the formation of unions in the first half of the 20th century. 
That paper I quoted earlier by Charles Hirschman and Elizabeth Mogford is a close examination of how another shift in American society affected the nation's industrialization. These few decades surrounding the turn of century saw an enormous influx of immigrants to the New World. These people moving to the land of opportunity tended to settle in major cities like New York or Chicago. Cities like these quickly became home to new neighborhoods, where people from various countries around the globe gathered together. Little Germanys and Little Chinas and the like soon started cropping up in every major metropolis. People have a tendency to herd together with people like themselves. We like to stick together with our own tribes. One tribe of like-minded people from a specific European island ended up giving rise to a long-lived stereotype as they established their presence in the New World. The stereotype of the Sicilian mobster. And it's this image that comes to mind for most when they think of American organized crime. When I said Sicilian mob a second ago, you probably immediately thought of New York, maybe Chicago. But actually, the history of the Mafia in America begins in another world-renowned U.S. city, New Orleans. The Mafia's start in the U.S. can be traced back to one Giuseppe Esposito, who was in trouble in Sicily after he killed too many politicians and rich landowners. He did actually land on American soil in New York, but he didn't stay there long. He had made his way to the swamps of the Mississippi Delta by 1881, where he caught the attention of Louisiana lawman David Hennessy. Hennessy caught up with Esposito in New Orleans and arrested him. Esposito was then expedited back to Italy. The problem was, Esposito had been followed by other of his countrymen and fellow wise guys, and they were none too happy to have Giuseppe sent back to the old world. The family in New Orleans retaliated against the interference by the American detective in the typical heavy-handed fashion the movies love to flaunt about the American Mafia. In 1890, the mob executed Hennessy. The New Orleans law freaked out. They arrested hundreds of Sicilians for the murder of David Hennessy. They ended up only charging 19, though. But here's where it gets really hairy. The people of New Orleans were freaking out as well. They ended up storming the jail where the indicted gangsters were being held. They ripped the place apart to get the man out, and then they killed them in the streets of the Big Easy. This could be the biggest lynching in American history. The Mafia has been a hated and feared power in America from the very beginning. They have always had a knack for extorting money out of the regular working Joe. In the early days back in Esposito's time, in the 1880s, they were particularly fond of a scheme known as the Black Hand. It's similar to what you hear these days about cartels doing to people down in Mexico. They'd kidnap people and then ransom them back to their families. The practice got its name from a note the monsters would give to the families, which demanded exorbitant amounts of ransom money with threats of violence. 
the note would be signed with a crudely drawn black hand. This scheme lacked the subtlety necessary for longevity, however, and the mob soon diversified their criminal enterprise. In addition to the standard prostitution and smuggling rings, they started shaking down businesses using unions as leverage. They'd go to a place of business, for instance, like a restaurant, and they'd tell the owner that his employees were now going to be part of the service workers' union. Quick note, I'm pretty sure that I'm just making all this up. Not historically accurate. Just an example. Okay, back to the show. Now the workers got a retirement savings, which they liked, until they figured out that the mob was just stealing the money out of the savings. And then, when the retirement fund for the union members wasn't enough, well, they'd go tell the owner to cough up some extra dough, or the workers were going to strike. Not extra dough for the workers, mind you, just extra dough for the mob. And if the workers or the owners didn't like this whole plan and refused to participate, well, the mob would just burn your restaurant down or your dock, or blow up your cabs, or wreck your shop. Business owners started paying tributes to keep their places out of the unions, or they'd just buy what was called sweetheart contracts that kept them from having to follow the union's rules even if they were forced to join up. The whole scheme of infiltrating or taking over unions and pitting them and the businesses against each other and then making money off of all of it, this has been dubbed the labor racket. I'd like to take a moment to thank our generous sponsors. That would be you, our listeners. This show is totally supported through listener contributions on Patreon. If you would be interested in donating, we have multiple levels of support, each with their own set of rewards, such as t-shirts, decals, The tiers start for as low as a single dollar a month, and there are even some options for one-time donations. So please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash imperfectclaritypodcast, all one word. If giving money just isn't possible for you right now, that's perfectly alright. One of the best things about podcasts is that they are absolutely free. There are other real important ways that you can still help the show, though, if you wanted to. First of all, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you are using to listen to this episode. We're on all the big ones. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podcatcher, Pocket Cast, Spotify, iHeartRadio, pretty much anywhere you can find podcasts. Just make sure you hit that subscribe button, and then give us a rating and a review if you can. It's these ratings and reviews that help other people find the show. If you like this podcast, give other people the opportunity to like us too. Finally, don't forget to check out our social media feeds. We have a Facebook page which is called Imperfect Clarity, and our Twitter handle is at ImpodClarity. If you want to send us some feedback, you can also email us at ImperfectClarityPodcast at gmail.com. Or just leave a comment on the website, imperfectclaritypodcast.com. I hope to hear from y'all real soon. Okay, back to the show. The labor racket was huge for the mob at the turn of the century. Not only did it play a huge role in their income, 
but it gave them power to control local politics to some degree, and it made the Mafia a key player in how business was conducted in their cities. This last bit was a very prominent part in another of the major rackets we identify with mob families in the 1920s. The bootleg racket. When Prohibition went into effect in January of 1920, it opened up a lucrative black market for the people who could smuggle alcohol and the people who owned businesses to sell and serve the liquor from. The mob's control of both of these fronts made them very rich. This setup is what made figures like Al Capone famous. But the labor racket was still going on in the background, and it still laid the groundwork for the liquor operation to go smoothly. Then in 1933, when hard liquor was made legal again, and the speakeasies started to disappear, the labor racket came to the forefront of the mob's fight for power and money. But don't get the wrong impression, though. The unions were heavily infiltrated by mobsters, sure. But they still did some pretty awesome things for American workers in this time, too. Workers had no rights before collective bargaining and unions won us the things that we take for granted today. Like weekends off. I worked 42 hours this weekend. Overtime pay. I'm a waitress and I make tips, so time and a half would be like $4 and something an hour. 40-hour work weeks. Altogether, I worked 56 hours this week. OSHA practices. OSHA? We don't need no stinking OSHA. Regular raises. Stuff like that. Although, <clears throat> some of you may not feel like you're getting the full advantage of these standards for American workers, nobody can deny that there has been quite a bit of improvement since the time of Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. I mean, things were pretty dicey back then, for sure. Take one job, for example. Do you think that coal miners have it better now, or in the 1930s? You ever heard of black lung? Coal workers' pneumoconiosis is a malady caused by chronic inhalation of coal dust. Nowadays, there are standards, regulations in place to help prevent coal workers from developing this deadly condition. But in 1920, no such regulations were in place. 1920 is a significant year for our story because that's the year that a particular coal worker in the small mining town of Brazil, Indiana, succumbed to the disease. He was a Pennsylvania Dutch man named John Hoffa. And among the family he left behind was a seven-year-old boy named James, or Jimmy for short. Jimmy Hoffa learned early on in life that the bottom rung of the American economic machine could be a bit precarious. After John's death, Jimmy's mother proceeded to raise the kids on her own. She moved the family to Detroit a few years after the tragedy. Jimmy was 11 then. By the time he was 14, he had dropped out of school. He had to help the family make ends meet. He started off working then, at 14, for a grocer. He had landed a steady gig for the local Kroger's, unloading the trucks that came in with fresh produce. It was at this job that Jimmy Hoffa would get first-hand experience with how workers were treated in labor jobs at the time. He had a great charm about him, and he knew how to get the other workers 
all riled up over their working conditions and hours, pay, etc. One example that gets cited often to highlight the unfair practices Kroger imposed on Jimmy and his fellow employees at the time is how Kroger would require the unloaders to wait at the truck bay for hours, sometimes as long as 12 hours for a truck to show up. When it showed up, they started unloading, and then they started getting paid. That's right, all of those hours of waiting, up to 12 hours, had been unpaid, yet mandatory. Hoffa wasn't going to stand for that. After organizing a number of protests which culminated in a strike Hoffa led, in which the workers refused to unload a truck full of strawberries and barricaded the dock to prevent anyone else from unloading the quickly turning berries before the workers got their demands, after all this, the bosses caved. The workers enjoyed better salaries, better working conditions, more fair rules, and less belligerent treatment. Hoffa, however, was marked as a young troublemaker by the administration of the food chain and was fired about a year after the strawberry incident. Now it was 1932, and Jimmy was merely 19 years old. He still had to help out his mom and the rest of his family, so he had to have some kind of work. Luckily for him, somebody had noticed his affinity for workers' rights and his knack for getting those rights guaranteed on paper. Jimmy was offered a job with a local Teamsters 299 in Detroit. When Hoffa joined up, the union had about 75,000 members. He would prove to be a natural for the job. He just knew the game. He would go into a workplace and get the employees all riled up. He'd convince them to strike. He'd say, screw the proper channels and approval from the union execs. We are all being mistreated here. They'd start what was called a quickie strike. That's a strike that just kind of happens. No planning or approval involved. They'd then put pressure on the local economic ecosystem by boycotting anyone who did business with their bosses while they were on strike. These high-pressure tactics were hugely successful, and Hoffa quickly rose to the ranks of the IBT, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. After three short years, the membership of the IBT grew to 170,000. This incredible growth in membership, more than doubling in under three years, wasn't just due to the hardball tactics Hoffa and others used on behalf of the workers. Jimmy Hoffa was one hell of a politician. Even though he never worked for the U.S. government, well, probably, uh, maybe, eh, more on that later. He was just an amazing people person. Charm in spades. He got people to work together who, at best, hardly thought anything about each other. At worst, they hated each other's guts. By 1949, though, Hoffa had grown the Teamsters membership up to 420,000 people by pulling together disparate and scattered unions all under the banner of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. By that point, the IBT had caught the drift of what was happening. They had a superstar rising up their ranks. Three years earlier, in 46, they made Hoffa the president of the local 299. But the local wasn't high enough for Jimmy Hoffa. 
Daniel J. Tobin had been president of the Teamsters since 1907, and the union had only been founded in 1903. Needless to say, he was an entrenched power player by the early 1950s. Now, there was a huge part of the union, pretty much all of the truckers and warehouse workers, and a plethora of other general labor workers in the central states, that didn't think much of old Tobin. They were plotting a revolt, and they would have been more than willing to rain some chaos on the IBT, just to keep Daniel Tobin from continuing to serve as their president. Now enter our hero, Jimmy Hoffa. He plied his diplomacy with the central locals and managed to talk them down from burning the whole union to the ground and bailing on the group. He offered them an alternative candidate, one that could win the election with their help and could keep things copacetic in the central state's eyes. It would all be fine, he convinced them, as long as they just chill and deal with Tobin until the next election is over. And then David Beck would be the new president. Well, Beck swooped in and removed Tobin from power. I wonder if this unrest in the central states had anything to do with Hoffa to begin with. A quick side note, that is total speculation. I have no evidence for this. Okay, back to the show. Regardless, Hoffa was rewarded with a position as vice president under the new Beck administration. But once he got the VP spot, though, Hoffa didn't stop. He started plotting and working to take over President Beck's job. By 1954, he was making headway toward getting Beck out of his way. He had become a hugely popular leader with the Teamsters and was admired by many of its members. He still had some politicking to do, though, before he could start a successful coup of the Teamsters administration. See, there was another important figure in the politics of the Teamsters. Martin Lacey was the head of the New York City Teamsters Joint Council, which represented over 125,000 members and held a big sway in the internal goings-on of the Union. Lacey liked David Beck and was not so fond of the vice president, Jimmy Hoffa. So Hoffa came up with a plan to replace him with one of his own buddies, John J. O'Rourke. In order to get the votes needed to put O'Rourke in Lacey's spot, the pair decided they needed to resort to less-than-legal tactics. O'Rourke knew just the guy to help them. He went by the name Johnny Dio, and he had gotten entangled with both O'Rourke and Lacey back in the 30s over a strike. In 54, he had been tied up in a protection racket that some of the local Teamsters were running against trucking employers. Johnny Dio was mafia, through and through. He met with Jimmy Hoffa in a New York hotel in 55, and by the latter part of that year, Dio had chartered enough paper locals to win or work the election for the head of the New York Joint Council. Creating these paper locals was just fixing the vote, basically. Chartering new local chapters with very few or no real members. And increasing O'Rourke's margins by counting their votes. 
By this time in the mid-1950s, the American people were starting to get fed up with the mob's labor rackets like this one, and journalists were taking note. One such reporter, Victor Reisel, had caught wind of the paper local scandal and had even managed to connect the dots all the way back to Johnny Dio. He met with one of his sources at a restaurant called Lindy's on April 5th of 1956, and he left the meeting around 3 a.m., surely excited and perhaps terrified by being on the cusp of such a big story. Unfortunately, Reisel had underestimated just how big the story was, or he underestimated the Mafia's willingness to resort to horrific violence in order to protect their operations. As Reisel left the restaurant in the pre-dawn hours, Abraham Telvey walked up to the journalist and threw acid on his face. Victor Reisel was permanently blinded by the attack, and Abraham Telvey got a bit too cocky and started demanding more money from the people who hired him. And he was murdered in July of 1956. The FBI would eventually trace the attack back to Telvey in August of 56, and from here to Johnny Dio. By 1957, however, after legal battles galore and ring after ring around the courtroom circus, the FBI just pretty much gave up on prosecuting Johnny Dio for the acid attack. The press sure didn't want to give up on the story, though, and neither did Bobby Kennedy. If you'll recall from earlier in the show, Bobby had played a prominent role in the formation and operation of a Senate Select Committee that was aimed at rooting out the corruption within the labor unions. This committee, called the Senate Select Committee on Improper Activities in Labor and Management, had formed from the collision of two political forces— Outrage over what happened to Victor Reisel and the whole paper local scandal, and an argument amongst the Teamsters and the Senators involved in investigating the issue as to who got jurisdiction over the investigation. See, when the paper locals applied for their charter, Hoffa's political opponents raised such a fuss and caught the attention of the Department of Justice and the Permanent Committee on Investigations. This all soon devolved into a quagmire of arguing over who should do what and who's in charge of which and when to do this and that and what and the other and blah 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 blah. But the people, they weren't having it. The Senate knew something had to be done now because the people were pissed. So they cut all the squabbling short and just made a new committee with John McClellan as its chair and with broad investigative powers and said... Do something about this, you've got one year. Well, Senator McClellan appointed Robert Kennedy as the lead investigator for the committee when it was formed in January of 57. It was called the Committee on Improper Activities in Labor and Management, but Kennedy had little interest in investigating the management side of the equation. He went after the unions and the mob like a bulldog, and after only half a year or so, he had put Beck and Dio both behind bars. 
Even though Bobby Kennedy is renowned as a masterful politician, however, his conduct during these hearings and the one-sided attitude he had towards these investigations eventually let Hoffa off the hook for his crimes. With the McCarthy hearings only a few years past, there was little patience among lawmakers and voters alike for harsh treatment of witnesses during Senate investigations. Kennedy was so inclined to bullying witnesses that his father Joseph Kennedy, old Joe from earlier, made a special trip to D.C. to try and make sure that the fallout over Robert's overbearing and intolerant, sometimes even vicious treatment of the witnesses, and his fumbling of questions and his just general ineptitude at presenting a coherent legal case, didn't poorly impact his other son, JFK's, bid for power at the Capitol. To be fair, the witnesses didn't exactly treat Bobby Kay with much respect either. Beck pled the fifth 117 times during his hearings, and Johnny Dio did so over 140 times. Overall, though, the general chaos and unprofessionalism in the hearings coupled with the accusations that Bobby was biased against the labor unions and prone to ignoring the improper activities of the business management side, this all led to Hoffa's acquittal. Even though Kennedy had flaunted pictures of Hoffa paying bribes to officials of the committee, recordings that were made with wiretaps that featured Hoffa and Johnny Dio discussing their plans to create more paper locals, and even using these locals to extort employers all over New York. Caught red-handed on tape, he was still acquitted. This all gets us back to where we were at the beginning. Hoffa is vice president of the Teamsters. Kennedy just lost a major battle with the union and a lot of political clout over how he conducted Hoffa's hearings. And Beck is going to jail. Things were certainly starting to look good for Hoffa. Well, sort of. With all the scandal around Beck, and with Hoffa being proclaimed innocent of his charges, Beck lost the 1957 vote for the president of the IBT. With O'Rourke in his corner and all the free publicity that Bobby Kay had provided, Hoffa was a shoe-in for the job. During the convention in Miami in 1957, the Teamsters elected Jimmy Hoffa as president. Although he had made a lifelong enemy out of Robert Kennedy, Hoffa lost no time in pushing his union onto new heights of greatness. Ask anybody who Jimmy Hoffa was, and the first thing that they'll tell you is almost always going to be about his unsolved disappearance. If the person you're talking to is old enough to remember Hoffa while he was still alive, they will undoubtedly mention the fact that he was a big union leader. And probably his ties to the mob as well. I think we've gotten it pretty well established that the guy was a bit crooked. He didn't have any qualms about using violence to achieve his goals, and he had little devotion to the rule of law. However, there were, and still are, so many people that simply loved Jimmy Hoffa, despite this affinity for violence and law-breaking. Is this a case where the ends justify the means? I mean, look how much better off the average working man is now compared to the first half of the 20th century. 
Sure, that can't all be accredited to Jimmy Hoffa, and it could be argued that most of the work that has left any lasting positive influence happened before he took charge of the Teamsters. But it cannot be denied that he played a huge part in making labor unions a powerful player in the U.S. economy and politics. A great little microcosm example of these forces playing out turned up right after Hoffa won the presidency of the IBT in 57. In that same year, the largest confederation of unions in the U.S., the American Federation of Laborers and the Congress of Industrial Organizations, voted in an overwhelming majority, nearly 5 to 1, to expel the Teamsters because of Hoffa's criminal ties. Still, in 1964, seven years and two elections to the presidency of the Teamsters after Hoffa's first battle with Kennedy, Hoffa procured the Master Freight Agreement. This was historic because it brought pretty much all of the over-the-road truckers in the country into the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. This was huge. Imagine the bargaining power you or your co-workers would have if nigh on half of the country's workers had your back. AFL-CIO or no, Hoffa had truly made his union powerful. That's all for this week. Tune in next time to hear about the exciting clash of these three powerful players. Hoffa and the Teamsters, Kennedy and the Senate Select Committee, plus the Mafia and a new player we'll introduce next time named Tony Pro. Imperfect Clarity is produced, researched, and narrated by me, Aaron Bradford. This show is my effort to bring you our faithful listeners, a little bit of clarity to some of the world's most perplexing mysteries. Even if a perfectly complete explanation of these enigmas is simply beyond reach. I truly hope that you will be able to draw your own conclusions on these topics, perhaps even approach the unknown in a totally new way. By doing so, together we can find a way to explain the perplexing demystify the obscure and elucidate the inscrutable, even if it is with imperfect clarity. A special thanks to Crystal for having my back on this endeavor and for helping me make this crazy idea into a real show for all of you out there in podcast land to enjoy. Also, thank you Crystal, Alex, and Josh for y'all's input in the segment about working in America. Plus, thanks to Zapsplat.com, where I got all the sound effects for this episode. Another special thanks to our patrons for helping to keep this show running. Thank you so much, Quinn and Roger Scarborough, as well as our newest patron, Derek McKay. Y'all are just my favorite people in the world right now. Thank you so much. And of course, a very special thanks to you, the listener. Without you, we wouldn't have a show. So please subscribe and review wherever you are listening to this. If you want to know more about the development of the unions, the history of the Mafia in America, or the McClellan Committee and Bobby Kennedy's fight against labor racketeering, I will include links to all my sources for this episode in the show notes. 
Also, if you have any questions or comments regarding this episode, or any other episode of Imperfect Clarity, please do not hesitate to contact me. Look the show up on Facebook. Just search for Imperfect Clarity. Or you can tweet at us at impodclarity. Or email us, imperfectclaritypodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out our website at imperfectclaritypodcast.com. Don't forget to leave a comment. Let us know what you think about the episode or the show. We love to hear from our listeners, and we greatly look forward to your feedback. Until next time, keep contemplating the confounding. You'll gain a little bit more understanding. Even imperfect clarity is always better than easy answers.